All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats. If you'll start making your way back to your seats. And as you head back to your seats, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 1. This morning, uh, I want to first welcome you if you're here visiting with us, especially on this Friends and Family Day. My name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as lead pastor here at New Breed Church. And uh, we're excited this morning not only uh, to celebrate friends, families, not only to eat some food afterwards, amen. Oh, y'all aren't ready. Um, Not only to eat some food afterwards, but we're also excited because we're going to be beginning a new series this morning, a series through the book of John, a series that we've entitled The Gospel of John, That You May Believe that you may believe. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the first 18 verses of John. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 18. I know you just got seated, but I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 18. This is how John begins his gospel. It says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in His name, who are born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This one, or this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because He existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed Him. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. God, I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. We're ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So there was a, this, this viral video that went around on social media recently, and it tells the story of a man named Joshua Bell. Some of you may have seen this, but Joshua Bell is a 55-year-old world-class concert uh, violinist, or violinist, depending on how you want to say it. 
He has a pro- prolific career as a musician spanning nearly four decades with over 40 recorded albums. He is, by all definitions, a master of his craft. He has played throughout Europe, accompanying Berlin Philharmonic, the National Orchestra of France, the Sophia Philharmonic, the Franz Schubert Philharmonic, the New York Philharmonic. He has won multiple Grammys and is currently the conductor and musical director of the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. He is, again, an accomplished musician, but most people have never heard of him. I was put to the test back in 2007, having just played in a sold-out Boston theater with seats averaging about $100 a ticket. Bell put on regular clothes, a baseball hat, and he went to Washington, D.C.'s Union train station. And while standing there in the lobby of the train station, he played for nearly 45 minutes, completing the first movement of Bach's violin concerto. Most people just hurried by with only a handful stopping to listen. Unbeknownst to the hurry train riders, they missed one of the greatest concert violinists performing an extraordinary piece of music, catch this, on a $3.5 million violin. They simply assumed it was another busker trying to earn a few dollars. One article reflecting on this moment wrote this, The experiment proved that the extraordinary in an ordinary environment does not shine and is often overlooked and undervalued. But this truth is not just reserved for concert violinists. But John, in John chapter 1, understands the propensity to overlook or bypass or undervalue the extraordinary when it is among the ordinary. And in essence... That's the entire reason that John is writing this gospel to begin with. At the very end of the gospel, right, John tells us the purpose of his writing. So that's good news. You and I don't even have to speculate as to why it is the gospel of John was written. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. Here it is. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing You may have life in his name. The entire purpose of the gospel of John is that you might know who Jesus is and by believing in him, find life in his name. So here at the very beginning of John, John does what's necessary if he wants you to understand who someone is and what he's done. He offers an introduction to Jesus. He's offering an introduction of who this Jesus is to anyone who would pick up and read his gospel. He is announcing that this Jesus is indeed the extraordinary dwelling among the ordinary. And he doesn't want us to miss him. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at these first 18 verses and offer you just three aspects of John's introduction. Three things that John wants us to understand as we consider Jesus. I'm going to give them to you up front. They'll be on the screen in a minute. So if you don't get them, that's all right. He wants us to see the existence of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, and third and finally, the hope of Jesus. Now, I just have to say this. I'm aware that we are covering a lot of ground this morning. There is a lot that you could unpack in these first 18 verses. You could spend weeks unpacking it. In fact, if you remember a few years back, we did spend five weeks on the first 18 verses of John. So I'm going to try to hit hit it this morning, kind of from this 30,000 foot approach, this broad view, if you will. So so we're not going to go into detail about every nook and cranny, but I hope that you will study it, you will dive into it, because we're going to be in this book for a long time. 
just giving you a heads up, we're probably going to be studying the book of John for at least a year and a half. Okay, well, amen. That's fine. We're going to do it whether you like it or not. So this morning, though, I'm going to take kind of a broader view. But the good news is that everything John touches on in these first 18 verses are going to get unpacked more and more throughout the book as we work through this entire series. So but before I get into these three aspects of John's introduction to Jesus, let me, let me tell you who this message is for. First, this message is for anyone who is here who may not be very familiar or familiar at all with who Jesus is. I'm not on under any impression on any Sunday, but specifically this Sunday, that everyone in this room knows who Jesus is. But listen to me, I'm not trying to manipulate you this morning. I'm not trying to coerce you into anything this morning. My one request is that you would listen to what John has to say about this Jesus and decide for yourself whether or not he's someone to believe in. Or maybe it's not even that yet. Maybe it's Decide whether or not you just want to learn more about this Jesus. But I'm going to tell you that there are a lot of people in this room who do believe in Jesus. I mean, you came to church. That shouldn't shock you this morning. There are countless people in this room who can tell you that Jesus is who he says he is. And he has done what he said that he would do. And we know it because we have experienced it in our own lives. But I just want you to consider yourself this morning. But this message is not only for those of you who may not be familiar with Jesus. This message is for those of you in this room who, like me, claim to know and believe in Jesus as well. Now, you might be thinking, hold on, Pastor, what do you mean? I need to be introduced to Jesus too. I already know who he is. I've already placed my faith in him. Amen. And I praise God for that. But we have to be honest as believers that you and I are prone to forget who the Jesus is we claim to believe. You don't have to say amen because I know it's true. Every day I get distracted. Every day you and I are tempted. Every day we are prone to forget who this Jesus is that has done so much for us. So this message is for you too. It's for me. Each and every one of us will be served well this morning by being introduced to Jesus once again. Because every one of us in different ways, in different times, and in different seasons are tempted to miss the extraordinary dwelling among the ordinary. If there's one thing we don't want to do, if there's one thing our souls depend on, it's that we don't miss Jesus. So here we go. Here's how John begins his introduction to Jesus. First, he simply wants us to see the existence of Jesus. He wants us to see the existence of Jesus. Look again with me at those first five verses. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it now, there's a lot to unpack here but before we can even get into what john is saying here we have to tackle how he said it specifically why did john call jesus the word or in the greek the logos and we know kind of lay this out there we know that john's referring to jesus even though he never says his name when he says the word 
There are clues all throughout the introduction of the book, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You see it in verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world. The world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. But probably the clearest evidence that John is talking about Jesus is found in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that John was talking about Jesus, but we often take it for granted why John chose to call Jesus the Word. I learned John 1.1 at an early age. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. I knew it was talking about Jesus. Somebody explained it to me. I believed it. But no one ever really told me, why did John choose to call him the Word? Now we have to remember, John is writing this gospel with a purpose. All right, John 20 again, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Unlike the intention of some of the other gospel writers, like Matthew, for example, who's primarily writing to Jews, John was writing to a broad audience, both Jews and Gentiles. And again, his goal being that they would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing Believing they might have life in his name. In other words, John is writing to reveal that there is something special about this Jesus. There was something divine about this Jesus. There is hope and salvation in no one else but this Jesus. So John calls him the Word. But by doing this, John is actually contextualizing, right? He's tapping into the thought of the people of that day because the word logos would have been familiar to the people he's writing to. Because in Greek philosophy, and remember, John's writing in Greek, but in Greek philosophy, it was a way of speaking of divine reason. But even more than that, right, the Old Testament use of logos was used specifically to refer to, check this out, the dynamic and active communication of God's purpose and plan to his people in light of his creative activity. So for both the Jew and the Greek, for both the Pharisee and the philosopher, the word logos referred to the divine's special activity in relationship to creation. And so John says, oh yeah, I could work with that. Like you want to see God's divine revelation? You want to know true wisdom? You want to see God's unique and dynamic plan and purpose for mankind? Here it is. His name is Jesus. And this Jesus exists and has always existed. That's how he begins his introduction in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John is doing something very interesting here, and I don't want you to miss it. He is tying Jesus to the creation account of Genesis 1. I mean, just look at how it begins, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God. John 1, 3, all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. The remainder of Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Genesis 1, verses 2 and 3, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So John is intentionally linking Jesus in John 1 to creation in Genesis 1. Now, the question becomes, why is he doing this? And there's two reasons. 
First off, to reveal that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. We see it in that very first verse in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Here it is. And the Word was God. So, so go with me here, okay? So when we talk about Jesus, we're not just talking about some mortal man. We aren't simply talking about a good moral teacher. We aren't simply talking about a man who gave us an example of how to care for other people. We are talking about God in flesh. John is trying to reveal, reveal that the Jesus he wants you to get to know is none other than God himself. But the second reason he links Jesus to creation is because if Jesus is the one who created then Jesus has the right to demand your worship. You might, might remember at the very beginning of this year, for those of you who are here, we talked about Genesis 1-1 as the fuel for our missions. Do you remember that? Good. But specifically, we talked about the first four words of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. And we talked about how that statement alone, the first four words of the Bible, is enough to demand our worship. In the beginning, God. Because it tells us. You've heard it before. I'm going to give it to you again. Genesis 1.1 is a declaration that before was, was, God was. It's a declaration that there is a God who has eternally existed outside of time and space. There is a God who has never been dependent on anybody or anything. There is a God who when nothing existed, everything that mattered was already there. There is a God who existed in nothing, reached out to nothing, used nothing, spoke to nothing, and then there was something. There is a God who sits outside of everything that can possibly exist in the universe and yet intimately cares about the universe he created. And the reason we worship God is simply because God is God. It's not because he's given you everything you want. It's not because your bank accounts are full. It's not because you're healthy. It's not because you get the promotion. It's not because your life is going well. We worship God because God is God. And what John is doing by linking Jesus to Genesis 1 is John is declaring that the same reverence and awe and worship that is due the God of Genesis 1 is due Jesus as well. Why? Because in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And if we fail to see who Jesus truly is, we will fail to give Him the glory and the honor and the surrender that He rightly deserves. Because if all this is true, if this Jesus who exists is God in flesh, the second member of the Trinity, if He is with God and is God, He has the right to demand of you your life. He is justified in claiming to be Lord. What I'm trying to say is that he is worthy. And if Jesus is nothing more than a human teacher who modeled for us a good way to live, then we owe him nothing. But if this Jesus is indeed the word made flesh, if he is God and was with God, he has the right to not only be our Savior, but to be our Lord as well. He is worthy of our worship simply because He exists. And when I'm talking about worship, I'm not just talking about the songs you sing. I'm talking about your very life. 
I'm talking about Romans 12, 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Here it is. This is your true worship. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see, church. So many of us love the idea of Jesus as our Savior. For those of you who are members, this isn't new to you. We love the idea of Jesus as our Savior. We love the get-out-of-hell-free card. I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to get out of hell. I can live my life the way I want to live it. But the problem is Jesus cannot be your Savior unless he is your Lord. And if he is your Lord, he has the right to make demands of your life. But here's the good news. He's never going to make a demand of you that is for your bad. He will always demand of you what is for your good, what will lead you in paths of flourishing. Church, I'm trying to tell you that God loves you and he just knows what's best for you. And we cannot have Jesus as Savior unless we are willing to claim him as Lord. But he is a good Lord. And if you need more proof that this Jesus is God, come back throughout the rest of this series. Because that's the entire purpose of this book. I'm serious. Come learn. I'm going to make the case. John's going to make the case that this Jesus is no mere mortal man. So as we're introduced to Jesus, we're introduced simply to the fact that Jesus exists. That's where he starts. Again, he's going to flesh this out throughout the remainder of this book. But John wants us to see more than just his existence. So in, in the introduction, he turns, after talking about his existence, he turns to the testimony of Jesus. So not only do we see the existence of Jesus, we see the testimony of Jesus. Look with me, beginning there in verse 6 again. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So in these verses, John shifts his attention to John the Baptist. Now we're going to dive a little deeper into John the Baptist story next week because what, it's what comes next in the text. But he, <clears throat> he shifts his attention <clears throat> excuse me, to, to John the Baptist. Now just so you know, the Apostle John, the one who's writing this book, is not the same person as John the Baptist. So it can get a little confusing when we're talking about two different Johns. But you got the author John, I'm going to try to refer to him as the author John, the guy who wrote the gospel, and then John the Baptist, the one he's talking about right here. Two different people. But I'll be honest with you, at first glance... I've always struggled with this when I've read John 1. And first, at first glance, I'm like, I don't really understand how you're going to go through this incredible introduction to Jesus and then start talking about John the Baptist. It's, I mean, you, like, I love preaching. I, I try to be a student of preaching. Like, that's not a good flow. Like, I'm going to hit you with, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. Everything was created through Him. He is light in the darkness. He shines. Darkness didn't overcome Him. Uh, there's this guy named John as well. Like, it just, it doesn't flow. I even struggled to do that faking it right there. When you first read through it, you're like, all right, why is he talking about John? I mean, John's going to get his moment in just a few verses. Wait to bring him up later. Why is he bringing up here? I thought we were talking about Jesus, and we are. But John, the author, is wanting to show us something very important as he introduces us not to John the Baptist, but he's still introducing us to Jesus. Because here it is. The reason that he brings up John the Baptist, it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify. 
is because John the author is declaring to us that we got to understand that Jesus was always God's plan. That he's been talked about. Because you see, the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus is one testimony in a long, long line of testimonies. And what John the author wants you to see is that this Jesus is not an afterthought of God the Father. Jesus, hear me, was always the plan. That Jesus coming in the flesh to restore humanity to a right relationship with God. Listen, Jesus coming in the flesh to restore humanity to a right relationship with God is the entire focus of the Bible. Everything points to Jesus. Let me give it to you like this. Genesis promises him. The law requires him. The judges and kings foreshadow him. The Psalms worship him and the prophets all anticipate him. John is not the first testimony of Jesus. Jesus has been God's plan from the beginning. And you got to see this. Do you know why God, why Jesus has been God's plan from the beginning? Because God has loved you from the beginning. Now I need you to feel that with me this morning. That Jesus is the eternal love of God. The eternal love of God made manifest. God's love for you was not an afterthought. Jesus coming is a testimony of God's love for you. That's John 3.16. Church, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you are just struggling to believe that somebody could love you. Maybe you are here and you are thinking that you are too messy for someone to love. Maybe you're here and you believe that you are too broken for someone to love. The fact that Jesus has come into the world is God's testimony to you that he has always loved you. But there's something else special about this testimony. Because John the Baptist's testimony may not have been the first, but it's extremely significant in its timing, which is why the author John brings it up. Because John the Baptist's testimony itself is the fulfillment of prophecy. We're going to dive a little bit back into this, a little bit more into this next week, but let me give it to you like this for now. Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 says, Look, I am going to send the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And later on, Jesus is going to tell us in Matthew eleven fourteen. speaking of John the Baptist, he says, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Now, here's why this is significant. Not only because John was the fulfillment of prophecy, but because once again, we're seeing that God is faithful because God is speaking. Yeah. Like we can't miss this. You have to remember that that prophecy of the second Elijah came in Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, not just in how it's placed in your Bible. It's the last book chronologically as well. And Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet to be the mouthpiece of God to God's people. And then God was silent. For 400 years, God was silent. And during this time, the people of God did not have it easy. It was a bloody, violent period for the people of God. And God was silent through it all. They were under the rule of the Greeks and Alexander the Great. They experienced wars and loss. And God was silent. Then Alexander the Great died and the Jewish people fell under Ptolemy's control. 
Then in the second century BC, this regime was defeated by the Seleucids in modern day Syria and the Jewish people came under their rule and once again, God was silent. In 168 BC, the Seleucid king Anarchist IV Epiphanes began a campaign to Hellenize all the Jews, basically to make the Jews Greeks. And this precipitated a rebellion by the priests. It became known as the Maccabean Revolt. It was a violent revolt between the king and the Jews. And through all of this, God was silent. When Anarchist died in 164 BC, the Jews regained religious freedom. The struggle for freedom continued in 142 B.C. The Seleucid king Demetrius II gave the Jewish people their religious and political liberty. They enjoyed that freedom until Rome showed up and they took over. And when Rome came, God was silent. Like, track with me here, for 400 years, God was silent. No prophets, no judges, no kings. And then John the Baptist speaks as a fulfillment of prophecy, as a prophet himself. And once again, the voice of God was heard. And when God spoke, it was not that of political deliverance. It was not that God was going to deliver the people from Rome. It was not a return to their own land and rule. No, when God spoke, it was a declaration of something so much better. Salvation has come in Jesus. And John the Baptist's testimony reveals to us our greatest need. And we hear some of it in the testimony we'll look at next week in 1 John 1, or John 1, 29. He says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The declaration of John the Baptist was that we need Jesus. Now this leads to the final part of the introduction that John wants us to see. Not only the existence of Jesus, not only the testimony of Jesus, but finally, the hope of Jesus. The hope of Jesus. Look with me again at verse 10, and we're just going to read through the end of our section. It says, He was in the world, and the world was created through Him, and yet the world did not recognize Him. He came to His own, His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, He gave the right, He gave the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of children or not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is Himself God is at the Father's side. He has revealed Him. So John begins the, this, this latter part of his introduction. He says, this Jesus, the very one who created the world, the one who sustains the world, came into the world and the world didn't recognize Him. The ordinary missed the extraordinary among them. Specifically though, in verse 11, when it says, <clears throat> he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. He's talking about the Jews because Jesus was a Jew and he went first to them. And John's saying, Jesus went to the Jews and the Jews, they missed him. Now I got to pause there and just make this short point. That is a warning to us that your background doesn't guarantee that you won't miss Jesus. Amen. No, but, but pastor, I'm in church every Sunday. You can still miss Jesus. Yeah. You, you, don't, you don't understand. My granny went to church. That's her faith. You can still miss Jesus. 
I don't care how much scripture you know. I don't care how much theology you know. I don't care how perfect your attendance is on Sunday. And that ain't nobody in this room. It was a joke. You can miss Jesus. And in essence, John is giving the same warning that we started with. There is a real temptation to miss Jesus. But here's the hope. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave, them, he gave to them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Right, Paul calls that adoption. Now, in order to understand this, we have to understand why we are not children of God. And I know that right there is a provocative statement all on its own because often the rhetoric we hear is we're all God's children. And I get the sentiment behind that. I really do because what we're actually saying is man, we want to recognize the, the image of God, the value, the dignity of every human being because every human being is made in the image of God, amen? Every human being simply by be, being created by God and being created in his image has intrinsic worth and dignity. But that does not mean we are all his children. We are not all God's children. First John, the same author, when he writes later in First John, makes that abundantly clear. There are two camps, and it's hard, but, but let, let me go there. He says that there are children of the devil, and there are children of God. And it is only those who have placed their faith in Jesus that are counted as children of God. We are all God's creation, amen, but we are not all God's children. I know it's hard, but the Bible makes it clear. The Bible makes it clear that because of our sin, we are not God's children. Our sin separates us from God. And as a result of our sin, you and I deserve to be found guilty. We deserve punishment. We deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. But again, the reason that Jesus came was to make a way for our relationship with God to be restored so that we could be adopted as children. Let me give you the best picture I got. Now, I'm almost done. Thank you, sister. So I've been in courtrooms before. I worked in the social work field for a while. I've been in courtrooms. I've had to testify in courtrooms. And usually, just, just letting, usually it was because I had to testify why a parent should not get their child back. I worked with people who testified in courtrooms. It's a stressful part of the job. Anybody who's been in social work knows that. And so oftentimes, right, like we would go with one another to encourage one another because those testimonies are hard. So I've been in courtrooms, and I know that at the end of that courtroom, at the end of that court session, somebody's going to be unhappy. Always somebody's going to be. You wouldn't be in court if everything was working great for all parties involved. And so somebody's going to leave unhappy. I remember one time that one of my friends said, hey, will you come to court with me? That, again, that was not uncommon. Looked at my schedule, I was like, yeah, I got free, freedom in my day. I'm going to be there. I'll be at court. I'm anticipating this is going to be a really hard trial, which is why he's asking us to come, right? Be there an encouragement for him. So I go into the courtroom anticipating at the end of this, somebody's going to be unhappy. It's the first time it had ever happened. He didn't invite me to a hard court case. He invited me to watch an adoption ceremony. And there's something about walking into the same courtroom, looking at the same judge who normally has to make somebody really upset and getting to celebrate as rights aren't taken away, but they're given. Yeah. 
Church, I'm trying to tell you the reason that Jesus came was to change our criminal cases into an adoption ceremony where we are not losing rights, but we are inheriting the blessings and the promises and everything that is Jesus' becomes ours because we are adopted into the family of God. He came to change the court proceedings from a criminal trial into an adoption ceremony. Wherein all the rights and privileges of being a child of God are given to you. How is all this accomplished? Well, here it is, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, this is verse 16. We have all received grace upon grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let me make it plain. When our sin separated us from God, when we couldn't get to God, God came to us. And Jesus, being both God and man, lived the life that you and I should have lived. But we can't do it. He was perfect, therefore he did not deserve death. He deserved no punishment. He deserved no separation. But he willingly went to the cross. To pay the debt that we owe. Church, they put nails in his hands. They put nails in his feet. They put a spear in his side and a crown of thorns on his head. They crucified him and he died on that cross. They put him in a tomb on Friday. He stayed in that tomb Friday night. He stayed in that tomb on Saturday morning. But then early on Sunday morning. He rose from the dead, having conquered sin, death, and the grave, and providing a way for you and I to be made right with God. He provided a way for you and I to be adopted into the family of God. And listen, it is not because of anything we have done. It's not because we deserved it. It's not because we cleaned ourselves up enough. He provided a way because he loves us. Grace upon grace. But I don't want you to miss this last verse, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Listen to me, the reason I love that verse is because Jesus revealing to us God the Father tells us that God doesn't want us to miss him. And I want you to know this morning, church, that God offers grace upon grace to anyone who would trust in him by faith. He has completed the work. He was crucified, buried, and raised. And the Bible says that anyone who comes and places their faith in him, believing that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God and repents of their sins, right? Like that's a fancy way of saying changes their mind. Simply agreeing with God that God knows what's best. It's following after him. The Bible says that if you will place your faith in him, if you will follow after him, that you can be adopted as a child of God. Here's the good news. You don't got to clean yourself up first. You don't got to go to church a certain amount of times. You don't have to do anything other than believe. Don't miss Jesus because he came because he loves you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that when we couldn't get to you, you came to us. We thank you that Jesus is a sufficient sacrifice to pay the debt that we owe. We thank you 
God, that in Christ, our criminal trial can be turned into an adoption ceremony. God, you have been too good for us. You've been too good to us. So help us to be faithful to you. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, I pray that they would not miss Jesus. And for those of us who have trusted in you, give us grace in the day in and day out grind of our lives that we would not miss Jesus. Because he is worthy of all praise and all worship and all glory. He is worthy of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, church.